the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And on this episode, I was joined by comedian Simon Evans. He's appearing at the Edinburgh Fringe just now with his show called Genius. And I was joined again by Dr. Alan Wager from the UK in a changing Europe. Now, Simon was once a guest on Question Time, where he was described as a Brexit comedian. So we discussed uh, a number of things around that, the impact of Brexit on comedy. But we started talking about whether that title is accurate. Here we go. Are you a Brexiteer? No, well, I take that to mean that one was campaigning for it beforehand. So, mm. no, I, I'm, I'm not. And But I was probably more neutral or at least more open to the arguments pro it than most comedians were. I, there was I'd never seen comedians tribalised to the extent that they were by... I think there were about two who stood against it and they were the ones who had made a name for themselves as being contrarian and, mm. you know, a little bit gammon, as the <laughs> phrase is usefully appeared anyway. So. <laughs> But, you know, I follow one or two other interesting and I think well-informed economists and politicians and commentators and so on who's, mm. who were making perfectly cogent cases for Brexit beforehand. So I could see that it could work, but I honestly didn't think it would. I thought it was all very... Yeah. I thought it was just like, you know, a bit like faking the moon landings. You know, one of those conversations, you're, oh, it's an interesting thought. You know? <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. Back to reality, you know. Um, there was a gap in the market, though, though wasn't there? For a Brexit, any, any, pro-Brexit yeah, comedian. It could have a lot... Yeah. Do you know, it's a funny thing, but it's so... Um, difficult nowadays to I mean I think obviously what one should do as a comedian is just you know follow your conscience of course and you should follow the funny as it's a, an ugly you know yeah. expression but it's it's fairly self-evident it, you, you, you go where the jokes are or what seems to suit your character and so on but once you have you know 20 years under your belt and you've a certain amount of reputation a certain amount of momentum you've achieved a certain level of status you don't want to throw it away by you know, allowing yourself to be tarred as a little Englander, a bigot, a racist or something like that with, even though Twitter is a very potentially damaging mm. platform, but something catches on and you, before you know it, you're boxed and then you're making evasive withdrawals and retractions and walking things back and it's messy and it's fine if you just want to, if you want to do it on a live show or something and you, you want to talk about it with a member of the audience and everything, thinks mm. it's fine. But if you actually brand yourself that way, you know, and everything goes a bit weird, then it, it just feels like it's a it's a potential chain or a, a you know, a limiting, exp- you know. I know Al Murray, the pub landlord character, you mm. know, has talked about this a lot. You know, obviously he um, he, he sort of went in against Farage at the yes. elections, and it was very funny. But his whole take on it, I think rightly, has always been you mock p- pretensions of political insight in themselves. You You mock people's hypocrisy you know yeah. as a comedian but you don't you don't take sides ultimately because it just it's yeah. limiting you know but the jump to sort of try and then tag you as brexit comedian was the sort of demand that we need to give, give it a name it must be brexit comedian it yeah, must be yeah. binary is it all, and it hasn't always been you think it's not always no, been no, that no no it hasn't always been that binary certainly and you could be one of the occasional columns you know are there any right-wing comedians why aren't there mm. any is it impossible to be a right-wing comedian does it constitute punching down is it just bullying if you have right-wing views and Stuart lee wrote a good one in the 
New Statesman, which he named me as possibly the only right-wing comedian that he found funny, and even then he wasn't sure if I was being tongue-in-cheek. But I was, I was pleased with that, you know, but that was fine because it, it meant you were sort of flirting with ideas or a character or something, and you didn't find these things unsayable. You know, and then Brexit happened. I think the Daily Telegraph asked me to write a story about the uh, phenomenon whereby left-wing liberal comedians were going out into the shires and out to the provinces, leaving the safety mm. of Islington and, and expressing their fury at Brexit and their, their, their Remainer, you know, exasperation, and were finding that people were walking out or that it was creating, mm. you yeah. know, they hadn't, they hadn't expected this. And this seemed to be a genuine phenomenon, so I wrote a piece about it. Yeah. And immediately then, um, you know, Stuart Lee, who previously found me, as I say, his favourite sort of right-wing voice, was in touch to say, you know, be careful, you're being played by the by the Daily Telegraph. They're using you to further their agenda, which is that, you know, <laughs> Brexit is, is a, you know, and Remain is a disaster. And you just think, God, it's all become a bit, you know... God, yeah. That's a bit, a bit weird. too much, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Stuart Lee, you had to, it feels like he had to tell you. But in a paternalistic uh, I mean, Yeah, I mean, that's like, was, what is the king being, of comedy? He was you know? mentioned, well, yeah, there, well, there, is, is, that, there yeah. is an element of that, definitely, <laughs> you know. But there was, I mean, to, he was a named party, uh, you know, in which I think he'd made some off-the-cuff remark uh, to yeah. the extent that out in the provinces, you know, it was, it, I think he was being sort of self aware and ironic when he made it and then he felt that, that you know the telegraph were using me as a tool to try and hang him by this but this is this is what i mean in a way you know you if you attach yourself to any kind mm. of movement or thought at all it very quickly gathers momentum you know has brexit sharpened that in that you, you're already talking I think about brexit sort of... has honestly created it it's an edit someone said something boring or illegal maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson you'll never know and my whole thing has always been within the stand-up comedy I do has been to talk about the effect it's had on the country as a as a as a divisive issue mm. and to talk about in particular my um, irritation at finding my parents who are both elderly and uh, finding them dismissed rather contemptuously as you know <laughs> as politically illiterate fools Mm. There's a bit where, you know, my father is uneducated and he voted leave. My mother is educated. Officially, she has a degree. It's an open university degree. She took an English literature in her 50s. Which way she, did she and vote? And she voted remain. So oh, she, they're, so they're, they're classic. They are, exactly. You see, this is the trouble. <laughs> but the truth is, my father's views, he was uneducated because he left school at 14 because there was a war on and his, you know, his foster parents he was living with at the time didn't want to, you know, feed him and they wanted him to go to work. Mm. He's not an idiot. He read a newspaper every day for the rest of his yes. working life, certainly, and he's followed the news and he has strong, well-informed opinions. He's an expert on aviation, which is quite an interesting lens through which to understand the world. He's He's been uh, a lifelong uh, interest in military and civil aviation mm. and so he understands how different trade arrangements yeah. create the opportunities for different countries to connect in order to build airbuses or boeing or whatever or mm. to sell on military you know and he understands a lot more about the sale of specific uh, aircraft to sound <laughs> yeah, to bomb sure. yemen and so on than many of people you know who yeah. consider who would think of themselves as politically informed and him as, mm. a, as an uneducated old norfolk bigot you know whereas my mother voted remain because she hates boris johnson that was you know that was the extent of her calculation as she said as much i don't trust the man and each of them in their own way also were kind of right actually in a representative democracy i i mm. i i defend your right to decide whether or not somebody strikes you as honest and a fair dealer or mm. up to something and then vote accordingly, you know. I mean, on that issue of education, if you like, and people having preconceptions, your show is called Genius. Mm. Um, the people who 
come to your show, are they surprised by the content of it, given it is a bit more subtle yes. than being simply either pro or anti-Brexit even? Mm. Calling it genius um, wasn't meant to be a reference to anything to do with Brexit initially either as well. Brexit sort of shouldered its way in there a little bit. But it was partly about, you know, my sense that, that the, um, the the intelligentsia was sort of, or that Remain were trying to claim the intelligentsia and vice versa. That was yeah. kind of where I was pushing back. The idea that that um, to be intelligent simply meant to be, to grasp the complexities of modern political reality and, and not to try to retreat to some, you know, um, gilded sort of Henry V pageantry of, of, of our glorious, you know, past when we relied on no one but ourselves. That seemed to be like a position that people were taking. And that was one of the things that I went against with the idea of genius. So, but like all shows, I think, well, a lot of shows, you start with what you think it's going to be about. It becomes <laughs> yeah. about something else entirely, really. So but why are comedians more, in terms of, let's say, academics, they think they're more intelligent, therefore they vote. Do comedians make a claim towards something like empathy, or do they say? Do comedians say, "Well, we're we're we're, we're pro Remain because yes. we have a feel for people." I've heard people say things like that. Some, I mean, some comedians are are well informed. Um, of course, they you know they're biased and and they they you know inform themselves from from sources that agree with them. But they are well informed, definitely more inf- well informed than I am, certainly. And um, and they and they vote remain on on solid grounds or they campaign for it. Sure. Um, but almost none of them. I think this was the interesting thing. Even in the build up to the to the vote itself, let alone before the you know refer- before the date had been announced, almost none of them really made a coherent case for Europe. It was almost all about the, the personal failings, the character of Nigel Farage being a hideous, you know, this this kind of golf club racist, you know, tin pot dictator, whatever. <laughs> That was all you ever heard about. And I think a lot of people will have felt, as I did after a while, well, you know, if there are if there are solid grounds for, for remaining, you know, let's hear them. If uh, We've been in the European Union for a very long time and I've never really encountered a very strong view of, as to why it is, you know, unarguably just this terrific thing other than, you know, the ease of passing through Schengen zones without showing your passport, you know, the fact that once you get there they have the euro and so you can go you know really quite trivial notions you know against which the the ambitions for a post-national super policy you know that seemed to me quite a significant concern so but that's not funny no, exactly. Right? But Nigel Farage what, is funny. Ah, look, exactly. look at Boris's funny hair. Really, it's a, really it's true, an easy yeah. laugh. So why haven't you gone down that route? Why because you, you're absolutely right. The, the, almost all political comedy very quickly you know, reverts to being lampooning individuals. And, you know, always mm. has done in the... Well, in the times of 1834 or whatever, it was a big fat-arsed, yeah. you know, uh, Napoleon. And the it? argument what is that's punching up, I suppose, isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. that, that, there's that. So, and uh, presumably, if you are... I, I, I don't know. We were discussing this earlier. You were asking about my comedy uh, experience, which was one night in Edinburgh in two thousand and one. Um, but if you're doing more details about this, uh, please, yeah, yeah well, that's, a, that's a whole different story. A very, yeah. a very short stint at Late and Live. How'd it for, go for a story? It was amazing for the first three minutes. Which that's is, all you need. Three minutes. As, as, I'll, yeah. I'll name drop as Fred McCauley said. Well, there's lots of things that are amazing for three minutes. <laughs> uh, and then the next three minutes were appalling, and that's why I never went into comedy after that, which would probably did me a huge favour. But um, if you're doing a gig like that, it's very easy yeah. to just go for the ha ha. Let's let's all laugh at Nigel Farage. Yeah, yeah. 
So why haven't you done it? Why have you gone for? Well, it wouldn't. That wouldn't be at all honest for me for me to do that. I don't think. But you know. But if you need to get an easy laugh. But I really don't. I haven't done it about anyone ever. I never used to do it about George W. Bush. You know. Mm. That, there was there's a guy called Norm Macdonald, American oh. comedian, kind of on the right, I guess, but not not political. Just you kind of sense that his main thing was always to do uh, like football commentary and roundups on mm. Saturday Night Live and stuff. You know, a pretty big name guy anyway, yeah. laid back. And he was interviewed about. Trump, which is obviously a very close call, hmm. correlate for for Brexit yeah. in America, and uh, and they said to him, "Do you think it's been a gift or uh, or or is it a poison chalice for comedians?" And he said, "It's a gift to bad comics and it's a curse to good ones," <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt about you know certainly about Farage, if not Brexit itself. Yeah, and and I I just want to avoid that trap. Well, you I went with that, with, I with of... my father to see you, and we came out, and one of the first questions we we were talking about on the way home was. Do you think Simon Evans voted voted Brexit? So, so a, a, it was interesting that it was yes. something we, we thought was a talking point having seen you, but B, neither of us were sure. Good. Is that what you're going for? Yes, I wouldn't want people to be sure. I, di- I didn't vote Brexit, but I didn't vote Remain either. I was I found myself in London on the day and unable to vote, and I was kind of relieved. I assumed it was going to be Remain all the way, but I was kind of relieved I didn't have to make the decision because I really wasn't sure at all. But then when we when it went Brexit, I woke up in Tower Bridge sort of area of the city. I'd done yeah, a corporate okay. for, for in this sort of hotel yeah, that yeah. overlooks Tower Bridge. And there it was this kind of red sash across the BBC TV, you know, uh, Britain votes to leave the EU. I was like, oh, my God, it's happened. It was almost yeah. like a bomb had dropped overnight. I was really shocked, properly rocked. And I went out walking around the city looking for somewhere to get breakfast. And it suddenly felt almost as if a neutron bomb had gone off, you know, like yeah. like the buildings were still standing, but none of this really meant anything anymore, and we weren't quite sure what it did mean, and, you know, did any of this still work? You know, it was almost like like a kind of Gotham scenario where the Joker has managed to just shut everything down, you know. So that told me, is what I'm getting to, that told me that I was not pro-Brexit. I felt zero ambiguity at that point. I felt shock and alarm, re- real quite serious alarm i think more than i'd expected to i was if i could have gone turn the clock back 24 hours and and changed it i would have done at that point definitely and as brexit has played out has that alarm uh, yes. melted away are you now more not melted away but I, my main concern now is the utter dysfunctionality of the government the the incompetence <laughs> i like the you fact know, you're struggling for words to describe and, and this the, government <laughs> uh, and, and the political games being played by labor and and the endless complications and calculations you know that that i find very very tiring and so i don't feel like i'm on top of it myself but yeah i just feel it could have been handled so much better i think cameron should have stuck around i think he should have had a plan i think if you're going to call a referendum i mean nobody even talks about cameron's blame but if you're going to call a referendum on something that big you've got to have an idea what it what what it looks like if your side loses not well i'm off then i mean that is absurd behaviour. Oh, yeah, but don't you admire him a bit? Remember when he, he I resigned admire, I and just had a little whistle? I admire He just walked back in going, do 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 I mean, come on, you've got to have some as sort of... As a comedian, wow. I admire him. I mean, as a character written into, you know, but he would be my villain. Talking and editing, talking and editing. It, it Alan seems... Bennett said something very in- incisive, I think, about comedy, which I've always um, very closely allied myself with this perspective. He, he was pictured for like a Sunday Times article in his study, which he'd left as bare plaster on the wall, so mm. there was no paint. And I don't know if you've ever seen bare plaster, but it's often a kind of mottled effect, mm. a bit like the marbled end pages of an old book, you know, right, that yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah. But they're all sort of the same tone, tones of pink and beige, yeah. roughly. 
And he said, this wall reminds me very much of what it is that I like in drama when I'm like trying to create a scenario or create a, a, a kind of a tension or a friction between two people or whatever. It's always much more interesting if, if it's quite a nuanced difference. Mm. If you've got two professors wandering through the quad of, a, of a, an old Cambridge University and they have slightly different views about Nabokov's intention uh, in writing mm-hmm. Pale Fire... Then, then you've got potential there for some, you know, assuming that that's something people are interested in. You've got, you've got yeah. comedy gold. If you've got a professor wandering through the quad with one view about Nabokov's Pale Fire, and he's walking alongside a plumber who doesn't, who's never heard <laughs> of Nabokov, and and just wants to get paid for the lavatory, you know, that he's installed, yeah. then you've got a very different kind of comedy, you know. You, <laughs> you still have comedy there, but it's class comedy then suddenly. But if you've got like. A, a dean who's walking through the, the the quad, and then there's just like a dog barking at him the whole time. That just isn't funny. Do you know what mm. I mean? It's just well, that's kind of what Brexit has become. You know, it's just become this. <laughs> it's just a dysfunctional. There's just such a huge gap. You know, you could argue if you wanted to do really clever political comedy, you could look at the incoherence of Jake and Reese Mogg's position vis-a-vis his own business interests or whatever. Yeah. But people have really got to have done the reading to get that. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing worse in political comedy than having to explain some certain facts. <laughs> so so for everyone who doesn't know, Jacob Rees Mogg is a backbench politician <laughs> who some people think is yeah. a Prime Minister in waiting. He also has a number of investment arms, one of which is invested in Ireland and has made a provision for a kid, you know. And <laughs> just go, oh my you know and I don't know if it's the same for other people. I never trust it. If you, if I'm being given too much new information and then someone's got a joke about it, I think, mm. is that true? Or did you just twist that a little yeah. bit so that your joke works? Because, yeah. you know, so, so, yeah, it's just awful. The one thing you do notice is that, I mean, a huge number of comedians and indeed even more depressingly like musicians or music journalists, you know, people who have something else to be talking about, they endlessly tweet about either Brexit or Trump. It's just, mm. you know, it's it's caused this derangement, you know, on Twitter, which just used to be this lovely thing where people, there'd be a bit of politics, yes, and a little bit of philosophy, and then somebody else would just make a pun about woodland animals or something, you know. And <laughs> What keeps you on Twitter, then? What keeps me what there? What keeps you there? It's a really good question. It's a really good question. Yeah. Addiction. I, I, this terrible, it's a kind of addiction. It's this terrible sort of suspicion that, it's a bit like the, the fruit machine. It will, you know, sooner or later, it will pay out massively and yeah. I get back every wasted hour I spent on it, you know, and it'll all just come tumbling out. I don't know. I think that's a fair point, actually, about Twitter because yeah. I find that, I mean, I, I, I make the argument and go, Twitter is not bad. Political Twitter is a bit weirdy and poisonous. Well, I do some stuff about right. gender, for example, yeah. and lots of people have piled in and gone, oh, yes, we agree with you and you, you make a nice little community. Yeah. Uh, and there's certain things that you can... Fight, you know, your football team. I mean, all right, you can, you know, if I put hashtag CPFC, then I get all the Brighton fans piling right. in. But to some extent, but main, you don't get that much of it because no, I'm no. not a big deal, you know. And you, oh, and Crystal you, Palace. You, oh, sorry, yes. that was a slow, slow of me. You yeah, create yeah, your yeah, little, yeah. little communities. But maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just trying to stand up for it because I'm addicted as well. No, well, I mean, I find, I know it is addictive, but it has also given me access. The whole culture war thing is interesting. Mm. I do feel it's like the big question of our time in so many ways, you know, whether it's be you know, sex differences, uh, you know, in, in the brain and, and gender mm. pay gap and all that sort of Jordan yeah. Peterson intellectual dark web type stuff. <laughs> and it, Twitter has given me access to that and a bit of a head start on it, you know, and I feel like I want to talk about it and I want to be involved in that conversation, even though it mm. does angry up the blood. You know, there's no question about it, you know. And it does open up your your uh, 
vista, if you like, in that you, yeah. you, you see, Ameri- for example, the American stuff that before we had social media, you would never be aware yeah, of. Never and the aware. same goes for comedians that you might not have seen otherwise. You, you, you are given access to them. You think, well, I'll go and see their show in Edinburgh or yes. they come to the local town or whatever, I suppose. Absolutely. Or even non-comedians, even, you know, speakers. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, Peterson and Sam Harris are playing the O2. Talking and editing, talking and editing. Right. Uh, well, let's just ask you, because I always have to ask you, researcher... Right. Have you researched this this week, basically? Right, have I researched uh, comedy? Have you researched comedy? Because UK Any Changing Europe did a thing on comedy. They had Aisha Hazarika hosted a uh, yeah. uh, an event pondering Brexit and comedy. What, what <laughs> research have you done on Brexit and comedy? Uh, have I done Other any research going to see on, Simon's show? Apart from seeing Simon's show. Uh, no, I've sort of pontificated a bit about, uh, you know, why it, comedians are more... It speaks to a bigger issue, doesn't it? It does speak to this division and this idea that, the, you know, that the, the Islington elite are all... Lefty remain, yeah. Like Stuart Lee, I keep picking on Stuart Lee. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Stuart Lee. Uh, absolutely, he's big enough to take it by now. Well, I guess a lot um, of the stuff we think about is, and it, was, it ties back into what we what we started with. I mean, the folk from Stoke. When you when you do your sort of uh, pitch there, is it? it do you, and you, and you see the country more of the country than well, if, you're, mm. if you're if you're a travelling comedian, right? Does it feel geographically divided? Do you buy this sort of thing about? What you said earlier is true to some extent. My audience is self-selecting as being fans. I mean, I might play somewhere like Stoke, but I'd only get an audience of two or three hundred, and you know, out of a city of hundred thousand people or something. So, um, you know, it's <laughs> so you don't claim to be able to measure the temperature. We've no but idea how many people there are in Stoke. The one thing I did, you do see as a comedian is just the state of the place, you know. And there's no mm, getting around yeah. that. It is. It's in. A, it's been in a dishevelled. The UK, yeah, for a long time, and Mm. this is a bubble that you can live in in Brighton Mm. because Brighton is shabby enough. Certainly, we can all see if you live there, you can see things you think the council ought to be sort of dealing with, and then you go. You don't even need to go to Stoke. I mean, Bedford, you know, the county town of Bedfordshire, a home county town that I last visited, seemed to me to be, you know, have quite a lot of delinquency and Mm. and vagrancy and and shuttered shops and betting shops and high street premises taken over by little mini casinos and that kind of the general drift from you know even from tesco down to lidl and 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 uh, aldi you know mm. there's a lot of indications that i think i mean this, this is no news is it that the great majority of people have seen no uptick since the yeah. catastrophe of 2008 they and do you buy said, the academic argument that that's the reason why brexit happened it was, it was I, I think it's economic. a huge part of it and, I, and even though people may be inaccurately connecting the fact that they've seen no economic improvement and at the same time um, they've seen demographic changes yeah. that they think reflect in, uh, the, the failure of the government to be able to control its borders. Whether those people have correctly or incorrectly connected, but that I can understand why that would happen because those have been the two most visible things. Yeah. We, we're all buggered financially <laughs> and I look out the window and everything's changed. So... You know, that is yeah. going to happen. I mean, human beings are, are a flawed calculating machine. I'm not saying it's true, but, you know, if you're any good at all at governing a country, you've got to be able to control those, you know, those basic calculations in the mind of your populace or you're going to lose them. Best thing. Oh. Worst thing. This one's for you, Simon. Um, let's hit me up with, first of all, what's going to be the best thing about Brexit? 
Well, I suppose that it'll be over. I mean, I remember <laughs> there was a guy um, called Martin Birkin who I used to follow on Twitter who talked about intermittent fasting as a, as a discipline that if you nailed it, not like the 5-2 thing, but eight-hour feeding windows every day. And he was like a, you know, really cut-built bodybuilder. Yeah. And he, but he had this thing and he said, and people say to me, you know, what's the best thing about, about being really lean and, and built and cut and, and like, you know, everything you ever wanted to be? And he goes, it's just that it's done. I really think that, you know, the sooner that we know, I mean, I felt the most significant thing about Brexit was the day after it, the stock market kind of kind of really faltered and the pound mm. obviously kind of, you know, dropped significantly. But a lot of those markers, the pound aside against the euro, have crept back up. Yeah. And there's been a growing sense that, you know, Project Fear, so-called, was genuinely mm. overstating the imminent disaster. Same thing has happened in America. A lot of people, Paul Krugman is one I often mention, Nobel laureate economist, mm said, you know, if Trump wins, the American economy will tank. It will be it will be in the in ditch within a year instead. Of course, as we all know, it's done tremendously well, whether or not that's mm. Trump's credit. Yep. He certainly hasn't destroyed it. I think the best thing that will happen with Brexit is once it's happened, we will know how bad it is. And there's nothing worse than fear. The demoralization of just being, oh, my God, is it, you know, is yeah. everything, you know, are we it's yeah. that chicken licking feel? You know, we are yeah. really afraid that the sky is going to fall in. I don't think it will, but I understand that fear. I think the best thing about Brexit will be, you know, that we are back on some kind of solid ground, however much lower it might be than it was, you know, three years ago. <laughs> uh, I'm tempted to throw that to you, Alan, and say, is Brexit ever going to be over? But it I'm could not be sure you're allowed to comment on this. Yeah, no, you? yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that one, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think it might, it might be, go on forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it could the, do. Well, that might be yeah. might well, answer it, the next it, question. It is the new background radiation, I understand yeah. that. But at least, I always think, the th I mean, the thing that... I do this radio show called Simon Evans Goes to Market. Mm, you know, yeah, one yeah. of the reasons the original pitches for that and the and the underlying principle is the markets are a better judge of what's actually happening because that's where people put their money instead of just their mouth. Mm -hmm. It's easy for politicians to spout and they're playing games the whole time, but where people put their money, that's what they actually think is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, uh, the stock market can change overnight. Of course, yeah. if it goes, you know, if we if we if we choose after, if we choose no deal or whatever, you know, different, mm. you know, people can make reactions. But nevertheless, there seems to be far less concern in the markets generally however much that's been supported by qe there's far less concern yeah. than we had anticipated and if we get an actual that's, deal and we know what, yeah. where we are going forwards and still the markets don't completely collapse yeah. then i for one will probably get sleep you know i think i would that'd that be difficult point. for pro-remain politicians who have based their argument on the fact that we need to defend the economic status quo and yeah. they haven't made yeah the uh, other arguments in favour of a grand European project. No. Their, 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 their mm. core argument is if this happens, it's going to be economically bad. Exactly. And then if it's not as bad as they Port say. Port Dover collapses on day two, there's, uh, you know, cholera breaks out in Cornwall. And it's not, it'll by be the, weekend, the Emperor you know, had no clothes, country. and that's going to be politically exactly. I think problematic, I think, them, in, yeah. potentially. And it's interesting that nobody has defended the European superstate, have they? I haven't heard a single pro Remain politician no. really say. <laughs> Roy Jenkins. The truth is <laughs> yeah. that if we, want, if we want to tackle global warming or the migration crisis that's coming or whatever, then we're going to need to act. Nobody is willing to say that because they know that that's terrifying to people. And the worst thing about Brexit. Yeah, well, if, I suppose if I've said the best thing is that we'll know what the downsides are and we can adjust to them. What <laughs> what will be the worst the worst downside? I suppose I suppose the worst downside might be just um, insularity, but I don't you know cultural insularity. I, mm. I do I do think there is a potential danger of that. But I I still think you know there's a country of fifty million people the fifth largest economy in the world. 
I think mm-hmm. we should be capable of delivering a degree of vitality and, uh, you know, there's the, all these words that people, you know, that the Brexit use sort of ironically. Oh, I see we've been culturally enriched again when there's a stabbing in Hackney or something. <laughs> you know, and kind of go, but we should, I think we should be able to cope with. But, you okay. know, there is, there is, I suppose, a, a, a risk, a risk of becoming slightly stale, of becoming. But I, I don't think that will happen because there's a huge number of, of people, however, you know, pro-Remain they are. They're just generally very outward looking in, in the BBC, in the arts establishment, generally in mm. the universities. I don't think they'll all leave, you know. And actually, you know, there will still be there'll be more paperwork to do, but it will still be perfectly possible for people to come here from other countries to study. It will be perfectly possible for academics to hook up. They will just have to fill in a few more forms. I'm not dismissing that as as, a, as of no <laughs> consequence, but the truth is we're moving into an era now. Of course, this is one of the other massive conversations which I I would really like to see you know people who really know about it talk about more. That there are huge changes taking in the labor market in the technology yes. development artificial intelligence and automation and so on this stuff is happening on a massive scale and it's not it's not like some kind of theoretical thing that you occasionally see a clip from boston dynamics you know in front of our eyes like victoria station which i just emerged from only about three weeks ago marks and spencer's changed their entire till operation to automatic self-service tills they used to have like about twelve people working behind yeah. tills in in Victoria Station. Gone overnight. Yeah. I didn't even. I wasn't even aware that it was being installed. Mm. That kind of thing is changing everything, and so that's got to have an effect on the kind of immigration we want, the kind of level of, of you know who we're trying to attract and how things are going to go forward. And to sep- try and separate Brexit from that, yeah. I think is is nonsensical. You know, they they are equal. You know, we may lose as many as ten million jobs done by low skilled, yeah. un- uneducated men in the next 10 years i mean that mm. could happen and if you like that answer i draw your attention to the arab banerjee episode of this podcast when we had the man on from the world bank exactly he's good at this it's all about yeah, yeah. you know there's bigger forces at play here than yes, exactly. uh, you know and brexit is a sort of little uh, pimple on the side of uh, i mean i think progress. britain this may be a deluded point of view I mentioned to you earlier before we started recording that I did a sort of spoof, um, like a podcast type thing, but it was for a BBC Two satire mm. show about ten years ago, where I inveigled my way into a Commons bar and pretended to be from a think tank, and uh, just to see whether they they'd swallow any of our ridiculous ideas. One of my ridiculous <laughs> ideas was it was shortly after the foot and mouth crisis in about two thousand and seven, yeah. wasn't it? I think Gordon yeah, Brown had yeah, just taken over, yeah. and um, and that had cost us something in excess of. 10 billion in lost mm. tourist revenue or something. Yeah. And far more than the British agriculture sector was worth, in fact. You know, it had been lost <laughs> right. in tourist revenue. And my point was, regardless of, of efficiency and so on, we need to create British farming that is obviously produces some food, but is at least as well uh, targeted towards creating creating Britain as, a, as an attractive tourist proposition. Yeah. You know, a huge amount of what appeals to people when they come here is our rolling green hills, yeah. our, our, our checkered landscape, yeah. our, you know, our crops, our our hedgerows. Everyone who's in the environmental movement says, you know, the whole point about growing organic is not really that it tastes any better. It's that, you know, insects thrive and mm. then birds yeah. thrive and then the whole place is peopled with, head, you, know, head, you know, Beatrix Potterland comes back. Exactly, that yes. is what we should be creating. That's what should we, we should be focusing on. Once we're out of the common agricultural policy we can actually focus on creating heritage farming farming that looks nice farming that looks nice which will attract Actually american be... tourists who love that shit and so do japanese and chinese and korean tourists all the ones with all the money now they will come over here they will look at they will just swoon every farmhouse will have you know b&b airbnb yeah. you know, accommodation it's going to be fantastic that's our main source of revenue
avenue going forward. And not just that, artisan work generally. People should be learning how to thatch roofs and how to build cathedrals. Imagine if we built a cathedral. A yes. full-scale gothic Doesn't cathedral. Brian and Hove need one to be officially in? It uh, does. Look, there we are. You so. know exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, let's finish up with the final feature, which is... In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. In the unlikely event, this podcast was not sufficiently enlightening or something like that. Yeah. Uh, recommendations for how to understand Brexit. Uh, let's start with you this week, Alan. Right, OK. Well, I was thinking about this. Um, well, good, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> Next March, uh, there's a plan for the Museum of Sovereignty to be opened up. By So a couple of hardy UKIPers are opening, and it could just be a collection of uh, Nigel Farage's socks. They, I don't know, they... His fag packets that he, I don't know, he yeah. put 350, I somehow worked 350 million a week for the NHS on or whatever. But it could be a really interesting uh, exposition of the development of Euroscepticism over time. And I think that's something that, so, so next March, uh, yeah. and it's something so, that, we, that we've sort of been discussing with them a bit. Uh, and it's, how, and it's how, how, they, how they make it something that's not only of sort of interest to people that want to understand Nigel Farage, but also of interest to people that want to understand the development of Euroscepticism. It's, it's, it's a big question of is it is it going to be a proper yeah. academic exercise or not, and how you can make it. But I think it could, it's something that so what's I'm your, looking forward to. What's your recommendation? Go there next year. Next year, that's, go that's to, a long term recommendation. Yeah, I think. Well, I are think they, are they looking? Aren't they looking for stuff? Aren't they yeah, asking people the mo- to send in their? I think you know, so. Brexit. Uh, I think so. Well, keep an eye. Keep an eye. On, my recommendation would be keep an eye on what's going to happen with the yeah, museum. Yeah, you can somebody. send in your. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not it becomes a General proper. De yeah, yeah, De Gaulle. All, all De Gaulle. Yeah. Skeptical about us being in. <laughs> yeah, De Gaulle's speak. That's, that's a good idea. They should get mm-hmm. the bones of General De Gaulle at the yeah, yeah, <laughs> first first exhibit. What's your recommendation, Simon? I want to understand Brexit. Where to would go, you send to me? To go full cycle. I thought about this, and to go full circle in terms of what I was saying earlier, my recommendation is to either read or, ideally, for less. Uh, laborious purposes, find somebody else who has read um, an industry-specific um, insight. And I was thinking about my father and the way he understands it through yeah. the lens of having followed aviation, you know, for his whole life. He has this quite, you know, I think quite detailed. And there's, I've always, always been a fan of the microcosm idea of how you understand mm-hmm. things. You know, if you understand one particular facet in detail, then you can extrapolate a great deal from that. Whereas I think an awful lot of people just read the first story in the newspaper every day and yeah. never quite get down to if if there's a bloke who, who uses vans to export musical equipment to touring orchestras and he is complaining that he'll go out of business that's quite a useful specific thing yeah. to know if somebody else is going well actually no this is going to be good for me because you know do you know what I mean if you really your so, recommendation so get talk a, to your dad get well, it is really yeah <laughs> yeah and, yeah, and exactly. ask him if he can lend you a few magazines, you know, flight <laughs> magazine, aviation weekly, something like that. Okay. Talk to a fruit farmer, you know, talk to somebody specific. Yeah. Find, I mean, I've got, I've, through my wife, I have a friend who runs a farm right up on the um, borders of Scotland. In fact, the, his farm crosses the border. And the first time we had a conversation, mm. it was about the Indy Ref. Yeah. You know, and how that would just have been absolutely catastrophic for him because he would literally have been under two different administrations with a single farm. But he was saying to me that, you know, the thing about farming, he, the farm had been in his hands for generations and he had another job doing cybersecurity for the armed forces. So he wasn't like a full time farmer. But he said there isn't really a full time farming job. There are farm managing jobs. But as a farmer, all your directions come directly. Your directives come from the EU. You are mm. told what to grow. You are told when to sow. You are told what chemicals to use. You make no creative decisions whatsoever and you haven't done for years. And he was kind of sad about that. But then again, it allowed him to do a different job and he had 
you know, people who work there, but a tiny workforce, you know, compared to what it would have been yeah. 50 years ago, obviously, you know. I think, you know, talk to people like that rather than getting your news from 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 the news. Okay. You know, the news is actually very often... There's a great rule about the news, which I'm sure you've come across before, which I, every comedian, everyone I know agrees with this. You read newspapers every day and you take them at their word, and then one day they run a story on something that you know something about, and you go, well, that isn't right. Well, that's completely <laughs> wrong. Well, that isn't how it works. Well, she doesn't do that. Yeah. And you just go, oh, my God. Anyway, and then you turn the page and carry on and just assume they're more accurate about everything else they're blathering on about, and they're not. <laughs> right. It's a good recommendation. It's not the funniest recommendation. No, I'm sorry. So on that basis, <laughs> I will hit you, up, well. hit you up right at the end to go hit us up with your best Brexit joke. Brexit joke. Well, my favourite, the, the, the one that gets the biggest laugh on the night, and I mentioned earlier, my parents both voted. My father voted leave and my mother voted remain. But the thing that I love about them is they did both vote. They mm. were, they, they're both in their 80s and they both have mobility issues and they both live in rural Norfolk and they both left the house that day and went to the polling station knowing that their votes would cancel each other out. They, they were aware of this. They'd had that conversation. You know, Diane yes. Abbott and Michael Portillo could be in different pubs in, in Pimlico and just finish up and go, yeah, no, OK, the, yeah. we'll miss this one, yeah. But my Fair parents, right. in their 80s, still voted. And I think it's the only thing that keeps them alive, the determination that the other one will not have a clear run at democracy. They're both on a bucket load of pills every day, but they will not let the other one have the final say. Um. <laughs> Simon is on at the Assembly Rooms at George Square in Edinburgh at 8 o'clock every night until the end of the Fringe. Do go and see him. Alan Wager, for one, heartily recommends it, but he's not the only one. Uh, it's been described as magnificently pessimistic, beamingly lofty, and it got five stars in The Scotsman last year, described as uh, being close to genius to match its title, which is uh, fairly impressive. It is a slightly different show to last year, I understand, but not that different. Uh, and if you are going to Edinburgh, I ask uh, two favours. Please send me your best Brexit jokes that you hear there. Please do get in touch if you hear any good uh, Brexit jokes that make you laugh. Secondly, you might actually spot UK and a changing Europe boss Anand Menon in the wild while you're there. If you do, get a selfie with him and send it to me and I will give out prizes for the best or all of them if there's not many. don't know what the prizes will be, but I'll find something. Um, for both of those issues, you can contact me. I'm at Political Yeti on Twitter or via my website, which is james-miller.com. And you can see the full list of recommendations from every podcast there. And in fact, you can get every podcast there if you want. Also, you can find all the podcasts on the UK and a Changing Europe website, which is ukandeu.ac.uk. And if you want to contact them on Twitter, it's UK and EU. That's at UK and EU. Please do get in touch about that or anything else. The music this week has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast for the UK and a changing Europe, supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. I've been James Miller. Come back in two weeks for another episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.